0: Listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Good morning, everyone. So today we are gonna go talk about Jesus when he turned water into wine at a wedding in Cana. Now, first off. Weddings are pretty great, right? You get a group of people together to celebrate the birth of a new family being created. What can go wrong? (laughs) That's what I want us to discuss first. I want you to turn to people around you, preferably not your spouse, because you probably were at most of the weddings together, and share a story of something that you saw go wrong. Go. (laughs) All right, so, always adventures, right? We could probably talk for hours about all the different disasters we've seen. I mean, you never know. There's always, there's people, there's things that happen. I mean, I wedding in Uganda, I set my hair on fire, right? Those are just the things that happen. <laughs> so, today we're going to look at something that went wrong at a wedding Jesus attended. And um, we're... This passage comes from John 2, 1 through 11, and instead of me reading it out loud, we are going to watch a live-action reenactment. Go! (laughs) All right, so that's our passage. What do we have going on here? Well, basically, this takes place right after Jesus has entered into public ministry. He has just been baptized by John, which is his entryway into public ministry. And John has just introduced him to a few new disciples. Some of these disciples used to be John's disciples. And John's like, hey, there's Jesus. He's cool. Go follow him. And his disciples are like, okay, sounds good. So they start following Jesus around. And then they call their friends and say, hey, this is Jesus. Check him out. And so this is how Jesus got Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathanael. And they are now following Jesus around. Now, Jesus just met Nathanael and saw that Nathanael was under a fig tree. And Nathanael was like, whoa, how did you know I was under a fig tree? And Jesus is like, oh, you haven't seen anything yet. Just wait. This is what happens right before they go to this wedding in Cana. Incidentally, Nathanael was from Cana. And so it can be assumed that Nathanael knew the people in Cana. And it can also be assumed that Jesus knew people in Cana because Cana is only around 10 miles north. Do we have the map? Map. There we go. Only about 10 miles north of Nazareth. And it's along a Roman road that... People traveled often. And so it's assumed that Jesus' family was well acquainted with people in Cana, which is why Jesus' mother was involved in organizing the wedding. That's why she knows first before anybody else does that the wedding runs out. And also why they were invited to the wedding. We also see throughout Jesus' ministry that he goes to Cana. Um, Every now and then, um, some authors say that he would go to Cana at a time when he needed a safe place to hide out for a little bit. Um, so Cana was a place that he was familiar with and would spend a bit of time. Now, they were invited to the wedding. In, at this era in Jewish history, when there's an invitation to a wedding, the entire town is invited. Okay? It's not just friends and family. It's everybody at the town, and it's actually considered an insult not to go. So if you decide, ah, I don't want to go to the wedding, you just basically insulted these people that you've grown up with and live around, and they will never forgive you for it. And so, Jesus goes to this wedding with his mother and some of his disciples. And, (coughs) excuse me, getting over a cold. And weddings were kind of a big deal. Because it's not like, hey, let's do a ceremony and some cake. This was a week-long feast. Okay? Imagine trying to feed your entire village for a week. That's a really long party. And so they take a lot of preparation and accommodation in order to make that happen. And that's part of the reason why it could take up to a year between the betrothal to the time of the wedding, because the groom has to prepare for it. And if he isn't well prepared, it's going to be shown in a very public way. And so by running out of wine at the wedding the groom was basically showing that either he was poor and didn't, couldn't afford more wine, or he did bad planning. Either way, that's a bad thing, because the whole purpose of this part of the wedding is, hey, I've just proven myself capable of bringing on a bride into my house. I can support her. I can provide for her needs. And he just publicly demonstrated that he couldn't. That's a bit of a shame, to put it mildly, And a bit of a shame in a context where everybody's never going to forget it, ever, as long as you live. You're going to be known as that guy who ran out of wine at your wedding, okay? And so it wouldn't just be a shame on him, it'd be a shame on his bride, on his family, and on their children. Because everyone remember, remember, do you really want to marry into that family? They don't have their act together, okay? And so that is the context of why... Running out of wine is such a big deal. It's not just, oh, we're thirsty, where's the wine? It's actually a symbol of the groom's capacity to provide for his wine and the capacity, like, the ability of them to rejoice and have an abundance of good things for their new family. Okay? So, what does Jesus do in this time of crisis? He takes ceremonial jars that are usually used to wash people's hands, and creates what would be our modern-day equivalent of 800 bottles of fine wine. The party's going to keep going on, okay? <laughs> so, we got to stop here and go, why is this story the first miracle or sign that John enters into to show us the life of Jesus, Okay. We've just talked about, you know, him calling his disciples, him entering into public ministry, and the first thing he describes as the act or the first public act of Jesus' ministry is turning water into wine. Now, we could say, "Oh, it's because it's the first thing that happened," but if you look at the book of John, he doesn't tend to do a lot of he doesn't really stick to chronological order, okay? And he doesn't go through Jesus' life, like it's a historical narrative, he is very specific and very intentional in which stories he includes and what he includes about those stories. And so it's not just there because it's a good story. What is the purpose of John's over the purpose of John's gospel? Now, thankfully he tells us. Okay, in John chapter 20, verse 31, or 30 through 31, he says. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So he's saying, there's a whole lot that Jesus did that I'm not including, okay? The ones I am including are for a very specific purpose, and that purpose is for you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and so that you may believe in him. So he only includes, before the resurrection, he only includes seven carefully chosen signs. Each one has a purpose, and he does not call them miracles, he call them, calls them signs or works. He uses this Greek word That's different than the synoptic gospels, which uses the word for power or miracle. Instead, he uses the sign, the word for sign or work. These are signs that show us who Jesus is and shows us about Jesus' character and that he is the Christ or the Messiah. Okay? So that's where this story fits into the book of John. Now, why this story then? Why would we start off the signs of Jesus with a story of Jesus at a party? Well, he tells us that too. John 2.11, John records that this is the first of his signs. That Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. There it is. He did this sign for his disciples. He didn't do this for the shamed groom. We don't even know if the groom ever knew what happened. It isn't recorded in this book. We can assume because the servants knew. And usually if the servants know something, everybody knows something, right? Um, But as of the end of this passage, the guests, the bride and the groom, and the master of the feast don't know what Jesus did. All they know is there's a lot of really good wine. Now, later on, they may realize, hey, there's a whole lot more wine than we bought what happened? Or the servants may say, Hey, did you see what happened? But they don't know who knows Jesus, his mother, the servants, the disciples, those are the only ones who know what has happened. So why did Jesus do it? Because he was showing his disciples who he is. Remember right before he told Nathanael, you will see greater things than this. He's showing Nathanael, the greater thing. He wants Nathaniel and his new disciples to know who he is and what he's about. That is why. And it's also why he, you notice he didn't do this publicly for everybody to see. He said, my time has not yet come. When he, throughout the book of John, when Jesus refers to my time, he's always talking about his resurrection and his death and his resurrection. At this point, he's saying, it's not time for me to show big signs for everyone to see. It's time for the disciples to see. They're the ones that need to know you 'll notice in the, the future miracles that John records he always says the audience sometimes it 's the crowd, the masses the people sometimes it 's his disciples sometimes it's um, it 's a Gentile group sometimes it 's a Jewish group but in this particular case our audience is the disciples and they see his glory now <coughs> Okay, so we see that Jesus did this for the disciples. Why? Why? Why was this miracle for the disciples? And what did they, this? They did. Blah, 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 blah. What did they get out of this? That's the word. Okay. Um, remember, John is intentional. Nothing is an accident. Nothing is by the way. This particular story carried significant meaning to the disciples. And us reading it, we go, okay. But for the disciples, when they were living it, they saw something completely different because it carried great symbolic weight. Okay? Now, in symbols, symbols are basically, you know, something that means something else. As Jason said earlier in the year, the thing is not the thing. Okay? (laughs) There are things in this passage that represented things to his audience that we reading it now may not necessarily get. It's kind of like... If you read this passage, it's hyperlinked. Okay, there are certain words that are outlined in blue that you knew if you clicked on them, it would lead you to five other websites that all have a different article attached. Now, Jesus' audience, they already know the hyperlinks. Okay, but we don't. And so we gotta go back and go, okay, why is this word outlined in blue? Why does this matter? Okay, what what are the different web pages that this will lead me to? Okay, and this is very key in the book of John because John Likes symbols He not just likes symbols His symbols have symbols have symbols He loves symbols it's dripping And overflowing with symbols from the beginning to the end That's why we have the word made flesh He can't just say Jesus was born as a baby The word was made flesh okay we can't just Say oh he fed a bunch of people he has to Say I am the bread of life okay And so every account that That John gives about Jesus Life is meant to reveal something About Jesus as the Christ but he does it in a symbolic, almost poetic way. So we get into the story of Jesus turning the water into wine, and we can see a couple of different symbols. The first one is wine, okay? Jesus makes wine. Why does this matter? In the Old Testament, wine represented joy and blessing. It represented God's blessing and abundance to his people. Okay? There's different verses that talk about how wine cheers the heart of man. Or come, um, like in Isaiah 55, he talks about how come buy wine and milk from God, basically. Talking about God being that source that fulfills our thirst. Uh, and in Leviticus, there's actually a drink offering that is poured out at the temple for people come and they bring their first fruits offerings. They bring all the first things that they grew in their, um, in their fields, as well as their first, uh, portion of wine. And they give it to the table that they give it to the temple to show that they're thankful for what God has given them. It's a sign of God. Look at the abundance you have given me. I am rejoicing that you have provided for me in abundance. Okay, and so in this wedding, you run out of wine. You're not just running out of wine. You're running out of joy. (laughs) Like, sorry, we ran out of joy. God's presence is no longer here. You can all go home. Okay, that's a bad day. (laughs) Also, we see that in the Old Testament, wine is a symbol of God's presence in the end times. In Old Testament prophecy, it's used as a symbol of the messianic age, when things are made right, when the Messiah has come to restore human relationships, and God's abundance and joy fills the earth. And so in Amos and in Joel, it talks about the mountains dripping and flowing with wine. And... It's even included in one of the earliest prophecies about Christ. In Genesis chapter 49, 10 through 12, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture or his clothing in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This is where (coughs) Jacob or Israel is blessing his 12 sons. Okay. When it comes to the son Judah, he gives him this messianic prophecy that through him will come the ruler, not only of Israel, but of all of the nations, all of the people. The scepter will not depart from him. And we see the symbol of a donkey, which is kind of important later, right? And we see the symbol of not only is there the donkey, the sign of the kingship, the sign of the scepter, but we have this abundance of wine. When the Messiah comes, he brings in this era of God's blessing, God's joy, God's abundant life. And this is what the disciples are, have in their mind when Jesus all of a sudden makes 800 bottles of the best wine. Jesus just declared to him that he is ushering in the messianic age. He is declaring through that act that he is the Messiah and he has come to make things right and bring in this end time era where the ruler has come back to restore his people and restore God's joy and abundant life. Now, Jesus also liked the metaphor of wine. We see this in the New Testament as well. He uses it throughout as a metaphor. He talks the most famous one would be the Lord's Supper, right? He raises his glass to his disciples and says, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He uses the metaphor of wine to symbolize the new covenant of, that he's creating through his blood with his people. And what symbolizes his blood? Wine. The wine of the new covenant. Now, that's our first symbol. Our next symbol is that of the ceremonial jars for washing. Okay? We saw that in the video. There's these big old stone jars. Now, they use stone jars because stone wouldn't become impure. Clay could become impure, and you'd have to break it and get a new pot. Stone was easier to keep ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean. And so they would use these ginormous stone jars. They would have them near the entranceways where people would come and go for people to wash. They'd wash their hands, they'd wash their feet, and they'd wash not just before a meal, but in between different courses of the meal. And this wasn't just, oh, you've got dirt on your hands, let's get it off. This was also about being becoming spiritually clean, because the Jews believed that your interactions of in the day, you had the p- potential to become spiritually unclean. You touch someone who's unclean, it makes you unclean. All of a sudden you are separated from God and other people. Like, you're in, like your soul, yourself, your spirit has been made unclean by touching things that are unclean. And if you washed yourself, you could become clean again. So we see the ceremonial jars for washing are a symbol of the sanctification of God's people. Now... It's, this was a constant process. You had to keep washing yourself because you could keep becoming unclean. And when you washed yourself, you couldn't just dip your hands. Like you had to take the water and pour it over you because the pouring would remove the impurities and wash them off. They called this moving of the water, the pouring of the water, they called it living water, which becomes important later. When Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman that says he is the living water that washes us of our impurities and makes us clean. So clean that Jesus could take the ceremonial water and turn it into bottles or ginormous things of wine because they didn't need to wash themselves anymore. The old covenant that was imperfect, that could not make people clean, was cast away in favor of the new covenant that Jesus was bringing that made them clean once and for all. They are permanently clean. They don't need to keep it up. The old has gone. The new has come. We can celebrate with an abundance of wine. Now, this brings us to our third symbol. Okay? Okay. That of the wedding. (laughs) God uses the the wedding to be a symbol of the metaphor of the relationship between God and humanity. From the beginning of the Bible to the end. The Bible begins and ends with a wedding. We see Adam and Eve and their messed up wedding. All the way through to Revelations... When the church, the new Jerusalem, is prepared as a bride and adorned for her husband, and we get to celebrate the marriage feast or the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay? We finally have the perfect wedding where they don't run out of wine. (laughs) We finally have the wedding where the the old messed up wedding is gone, and we have the new perfect marriage between God and his people. All through the Bible, we see this metaphor of the marriage between God and his people, between Christ and his church. And again and again, God's heart breaks when his people are the unfaithful wife. We see in the New Testament that Christ has come to finally perfect the marriage and make his bride what he always dreamed it would be. Now, it's fascinating if you look at the analogies between the Jewish wedding ceremony and the ministry of Christ. Okay. The Jewish wedding ceremony is a very long process with multiple steps. Now it would begin with both families negotiating a marriage covenant. They would meet together to talk about, Hey, we think our kids should get married. This is, These are the the logistics. This is what you need to give. This is what I need to give. This is what you need to do. And this is what I need to do. The betrothal process was sealed when the prospective groom pours a glass of wine for his new bride. She symbolizes her acceptance of the proposal by drinking it. Think about the Last Supper in those terms. Jesus just proposed to his disciples. (laughs) to his church, to his new people. He says, I want to make a new marriage covenant. The old has gone, the new has come. Will you drink the new wine and seal the process? Now, once the marriage covenant has been accepted, the groom's family pays a bride's price or a certain amount of money to compensate for the loss of the bride in that family. And. Shows that the marriage covenant has been accepted. At this point the bride is considered bought at a price. And she is known that from thenceforth forth As belonging to the other family. She can't belong to any other family. She has been bought at a price. Then the groom goes away. To prepare a place in his father's house for her. And. The bride also has to prepare herself through ceremonial washing in baths of living water. The groom will return at a day and hour that is unknown to the bride. She has to be ready for him at any time. When the groom comes to fetch her, he will come in the middle of the night and he will Play tr- or blow trumpets along the way so the bride hears them and knows to prepare herself and dress herself in her best clothes. When he comes, he takes her to his father's house to a special bridal chamber called a chupa, where they consummate the marriage while the friends sit outside to hear that it's been consummated. <laughs> and after that's happened, the wedding feast can begin. <laughs> Then the party begins. Now, you have to think about this, though, in the very next chapter of John. Because, once again, the metaphor of Jesus being the bridegroom and the bride is referenced by John the Baptist. He says, um, in John chapter 329, um... Uh Uh-oh, we don't have it. Well, let me read it. John 3, 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. What's the role of the friend of the bridegroom? They stand outside the marriage chamber to hear the marriage has been sealed so they can proclaim the time of joy and feasting has arrived. Okay? Okay. That's John's role. John himself has just compared Jesus to the bridegroom and his people as the bride and is saying this is the time of joy and rejoicing because the marriage between the lamb and his bride is being fulfilled. The deal is being sealed. It's a time to rejoice and party because they are now one where they could not be one before. Now, it's interesting to think about the symbols that run through the marriage ceremony and through the book of John and through the Bible again and again and again. I mentioned before, this bridal chamber is called the chupa. In modern day Jewish weddings, they still have what they call a chupa. It's a tent that the couple does their marriage vows under. Okay? They say that it reflects... It's a reference to the tabernacle, which in the Old Testament times, when the people of Israel were in the desert, the tabernacle was a tent of meeting, which Israel could go into to enter the presence of God, where God and his people could dwell together. Now, it wasn't perfect yet because they couldn't enter the most holy of holies. It was veiled, but it was a foreshadow of the things to come. Now, this tabernacle is referenced again as the temple. And once again, John chapter one, when Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, what's that word? Incarnate, which also is tabernacled. Jesus pitched his tent. He pitched his tabernacle to dwell among us. In Revelations chapter 21, where it talks about the bride beautifully adorned for her husband, coming to join her husband The next verse, it talks about God dwelling with his people and his people dwelling with him. That's that same word, tabernacled. God tabernacles with his people and dwells among us. But at this point, the veil has been broken. We can enter in the most holy of holies, which is interesting because the other meaning for the chupa was the veil that the bride separated, covered herself once she was engaged, that was removed once she was married. Once she is married, the veil is no longer needed. The deal has been sealed. They are one. Christ and his church are united. Now, we we also see that um, in Jesus... The old covenant where the bride had to wash herself in the living water is unnecessary because Christ comes and does it for her. Because he recognizes she is never going to be clean enough. She can't do it herself. And so he comes and takes care of that for her. He also takes care of the bride price. He pays for his own, with it, with his own life. Seals the covenant, creates a new marriage covenant that is forever we see in the story of Jesus turning the water into wine that where the first bridegroom failed to provide for his bride and brought her shame instead of glory, Christ, the real bridegroom, comes and takes away her shame and gives her joy and delight in abundance. He brings her into his glory. And he saved the best for last. Um, now it's interesting in the Jewish tradition. Currently, um, I read the writings of a rabbi named Rabbi Maurice Lamb. He talked about how in the Jewish tradition, marriage means to sanctify. He wrote that wine in the Jewish tradition is closely associated with the Sabbath and with festivals at the beginning of the holy day. Wine ushers in the spirit of sanctity, and at the end, wine closes it. This accomplishes a significant task. It marks the boundary lines and separates the holiness of the holy day from the secular character of an ordinary day. As the Sabbath was like a wedding, so the wedding took on the characteristics of the Sabbath. Wine signaled the sanctification. As the Sabbath sanctified the day, investing the commonplace with the mystery and the grandeur of holiness, calling activities such as eating and sleeping delight, marriage is able to sanctify the mundane routines of life with a sense of the holy and to endow personal relationships with the character of the covenant. The sanctity of marriage means embracing life and elevating it to the level of the sacred. As the Sabbath made a sanctuary of time, marriage must make, make a sanctuary of human relationship. And I find it interesting how wine symbolized sanctification, the ceremonial jars for washing symbolize sanctification. What is wedding? What does the wedding represent? Sanctification. <laughs> is there a theme here? Just me? <laughs> sanctification. But the sanctification that human beings cannot accomplish on their own. Jesus came to blur the boundary lines between what is holy and what is secular, between regular, everyday life and the divine. He took made he took on flesh himself. To make flesh itself sacred and holy and made pure and made clean and made right with God. He did it. And he has sanctified all parts of life and made them his. We see this. and The Bible likes, like God likes to use regular everyday life as symbols of the spiritual realities because our brains can't understand them otherwise. And so they're what the book of Hebrews calls copies or shadows of what is in heaven. And we see marriage as the great metaphor of what our relationship with God is supposed to be like. In uh, Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 28 and then 31, uh, B through 32, um, God describes what this relationship is supposed to be like. says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her that he might, what? Sanctify her by washing with the water of the word. That living water again, right? That washing, the ceremonial cleaning of his bride. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any other such thing. She is made clean so that she might be holy and without blemish. And then the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The metaphor of marriage is meant to point us towards what our relationship with God is supposed to look like after we've been redeemed, reconciled, and made clean. What the old covenant couldn't do, where the old covenant failed, the new covenant fixes the two can finally become one again christ and his church are unified made one made clean sanctified and become the most intimate human relationship and the church couldn't do it herself it needed the christ in this story we see john showing us what jesus came to do he came to foreshadow or this, stat, this story foreshadows Christ's glory. It's like a tint of things c- to come. It's a sneak peek. It's the trailer for the rest of Jesus's ministry. The rest of the book of John, we're going to keep going through these, these ideas of sanctification, of living water, of being washed, of being united and made one with Christ, of uh, being connected to the vine, okay? All of these things are going to come up again and again and again. But this story... Sets the tone. It starts it. It shows us the glory that is coming. And it showed the disciples. The glory that was coming. It showed. The. It, sh- it was to tell the disciples. That it's not time yet. For these things to be realized. But it's coming. We see the new covenant. Is coming. And. It's going to. Um, set. Set the precedent it's going to set a new order of things where god is going to be sanctifying his people establishing a new and permanent covenant that far supersedes the old even more so than the old wine was superseded by the new with more joy than the old covenant had and with greater sanctification or purity or a healing of unrighteousness that was there before and John includes the sign to reveal Jesus' purpose in incarnating or tabernacling among us. Through the work on the cross, Jesus and his church are made one forever. So John 20, 31, back to that. The purpose of the book of John. These signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the one who came to establish the new covenant and make things back the way they're supposed to be, but even better. The son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. So my question for you today, do you believe that? Do you have life in his name? Have you allowed him to sanctify your life and to dwell with you? Have you tasted his wine, his joy, the delight of his presence? Have you accepted his marriage proposal? Do you belong to him? Thank you. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.